Well, welcome to Susquehanna Valley Church. It is great to be here. If you, uh, if you kind of keep up with what we've been doing lately, you've probably heard that I had, uh, had COVID the past week and, or two weeks and uh, feeling pretty good at this point. I don't normally like to talk about like my health and that kind of stuff, but everybody seems to ask the same question, so I'll answer it all at once. Um, we survived and uh, it really was very much like a roller coaster where you feel great one minute and then you feel down the next minute. I was talking to the staff um, and I said, I feel like a 39 year old that played a football game with a bunch of 20 year olds. And, uh, and so, so that should give you a pretty accurate presentation of how I feel right now. Uh, but, but really it's just been a season to, to slow down, which has been good considering we're in a society that really speeds things up. And uh, it's funny this week I was working on a sermon series we're doing in January about resting in God. And it's been a, it's been a season of that for us as a family <laughs> uh, to, to just stop and slow down and reflect. But uh, that's what, what today is about. Today is about uh, Philippians chapter one. And, and from time to time, we'll do these, what we call chapter one series. And chapter one series are really looking at some of the foundations of the epistles, these letters written from, uh, from, from different apostles, from Paul to, uh, to a church to kind of lay down um, some theological truths and then get into the practical aspects of it. And, and our society, I think that that we tend to, to lose some of the theological importance that we find in chapter one in many of these, these, uh, these different epistles. So we wanted to, to focus on that and make that a big deal and come back to that from time to time. So we've been in Philippians one um, and uh, yeah, we're, we're gonna just jump right off. Let, let's pray, Let, let's do that. Um, God, I just thank you so much for the opportunity for us to be here this morning. I thank you, Lord, for your word to guide us in times of uncertainty, and really if we're honest, God, most of what's in front of us in life is uncertain. None of us really knows what tomorrow holds. None of us knows what today holds fully, God. We're gonna go try and love and serve some people today. We hope it's very uplifting and joyful for you. Uh, we hope it's just a great thing to be a part of. But today, Lord, right now, I pray that we trust in your sovereignty and your plan and your ability to know what's gonna happen. Um, and, and Lord, as we look at Philippians 1, we pray that that the attitude of Paul as he faces some extreme trials would, would be such that it would come into our lives as well. That we would be people who are steadfast in these seasons of difficulty. And we ask this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Um, one thing that I definitely miss uh, about the, the pre, uh, pre-COVID life is, uh, is baseball. As a good game of baseball, and I, I don't mean you know watching it on TV, because as much as I like baseball and, and like to watch it on TV, there's just something about going to a game. There's the experience. There's the ambiance. You know, there, there's the the twenty-five dollar hot dog. There's um, <laughs> there's just the whole experience, which is which is a, a fun thing. And and um, you know this this particular baseball actually came from a baseball game that I went to with my son in in May of 2019, when you were allowed to be in a crowd of people and and uh, just be about life as normal. And uh, I've actually become quite good at getting baseballs. Now I can't give you that secret of how we do this. But in the last six games, we've got about seven baseballs. So, so we're, we're pretty skilled at it. Um, but if I told you, then you would know, and, and it just, you, would, you would take baseballs from me and my family, and I'm not cool with that, okay? On top of that, the problem is you would probably go to a Phillies game and get a Phillies baseball, and that's just a piece of garbage. All right, now I'm a Milwaukee Brewers fan, 
And uh, as a Brewers fan, you know, when a Brewers player gives you a baseball, it means something. It's got value. Oh. When a Phillies player gives you a baseball, it's like, you know when you buy a new car and you drive it off the lot and it just loses its value? That's a Phillies baseball, all right? But I, I, I love this game, I, I, and I love going to, and in particular, this, this baseball would be special for me, taking my son Isaiah to the game and, and sitting there enjoying it. And really, it's, it, it, as I reflect back on that day, it was a win-win. Um, it was a win-win day. You ever been in a win-win situation where everything's just kind of going, going your way? Uh, you know, I'm there with my son. We get a baseball. The Brewers win 11-3. to it's, it's a win-win game. Everything about it is going, going great. What's interesting is when we read Philippians chapter 1, you'd think he was at a ball game with somebody he loved and his team was winning. You'd think everything was going his way. You'd think this, this is a win-win. Whatever he's experienced in life, it's got to be great. But then you read the backstory and you, you hear the statements that he makes. And most of us wouldn't call it a win-win. Because Paul's writing this from prison, under arrest, awaiting trial, possibly facing execution. And so you kind of scratch your head and you say, wait, wait a second, Paul. You're talking about this like it's a win-win, but this is a lose-lose scenario. I mean, you're, you're in chains and your very life is at stake. The outcome is you're going to live or you're going to die. And Paul, at this point, has been in prison for a number of years. And so his attitude is absolutely incredible. Let, let's read it. Let's read what he reads as he awaits trial. He says, yes, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 19, he says, Yes, I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but I will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Jesus will abound on account of me. Let's just pray again. God, um, I ask that you teach us. I ask that we would put our hearts in front of you, um, that we would give you permission to shape us and mold us at, at a level that we don't often let things impact, at a level, level of, that affects our, our motivations and the why of what we do in life. Lord, I pray that you would just teach us this morning. In your son's name, amen. So you've got Paul in this situation where on one hand, he really doesn't know what the outcome's going to be. And we read a text like this, and we tend, to, we tend to, as I talked about last week, we tend to flatten it. We tend to think of it as just one, one moment. Paul's been in prison for years, and he's been anticipating this outcome of this trial. And the climax is not too far off in the, the distant future. Is he going to live or is he going to die? And so you have to understand, from a human standpoint, this has got to be filled with anxiety. This has got to be nerve-wracking. But you read Paul, and you don't pick that up. If I didn't tell you that, 
If you didn't have in the mind that, that day in, day out, that he's been sitting here handcuffed, facing the possibility that his life might end soon, you, you would read this and think he's probably having a pretty good day. He's at a ball game, his kid's there, and the team's winning. It's a win-win. He's talking about it in a way that it's like, this, this doesn't make sense. And so you come to, to, to one or two conclusions here. Either Paul is legitimately crazy, like he just lost it. He's been in prison so long that, that he's not thinking properly at this point. Everything's a little fuzzy up there, and he's just not, he's not on top of his game. But you read his words, and they sound very intelligent and very logical, and, and, and it seems like he's not crazy at all. And so the other option is that what you see here is quite admirable. To be in the, the most just darkest circumstances, and to be able to have the brightest personality is incredible. I, I think it's admirable. I look at that and I say, I, say I, hope, I hope that I can be in circumstances like that and have a joy that is untouched by what's right around me. I hope that I can be like that, where, where he's got just a way of living that overflows from a love of God, where it's as if he's not really where he is at all because of his love for God and God's love for him, where it transforms the most dire circumstances into really what become delightful circumstances, where Paul's sitting there in prison and he's rejoicing. And you've got to understand, like the, the other prisoners would probably be like, this guy is nuts. And the prison guards would be like, What's, how's this guy singing? How's this guy excited? Well, Paul knows something that he's sharing with them, that the love of Jesus Christ goes beyond what this world can understand. And there's a peace, as the Proverbs speak of, that passes understanding in, in these seasons. But I, I want us to understand that I don't think this comes easy. Because Paul talks about this, and he talks about, uh, as he's, he's talking about this decision of, of what's going to happen, and he's not really sure, is it better for him to, to go in, in his mind? Yes, it is. It's better for him to go and be with Jesus. That would be better for him. But yet to stay and continue to have an impact for God would, would also be better for the people that he's ministering to. And, and Paul's going back and forth and back and forth. And as he's wrestling with this, he speaks of a word that, that they are supplying him that they're supplying him. And that word for supply is a support. Uh, when, when I was in my 20s, I referenced playing football. Um, I loved to play backyard football with my friends. We were, we were in college and we would have an annual Thanksgiving football game and, and, uh, and we would always take it way more seriously than we should. Like we, we were friends up until the point we picked teams and then we weren't friends for the next two hours. And, uh, and one particular game, I, I was playing quarterback, and I threw, threw a pass that was intercepted by a guy named Jared Schnapp. Jared's a great guy. Um, and, and Jared was actually one of the fastest athletes in the state of Pennsylvania. He was in the top three of the 400-meter dash when he was in high school. This guy was incredibly fast, and I threw the ball to him, and he intercepted it. And everybody else in the field just gave up because they knew Jared was going to score a touchdown, <laughs> except for me. I was, I was determined that I was going to catch him. Now, I know that you look at me and you say, well, he looks like a really fast guy. I know. I know that's what you think. But, but I'm not really. I'm not. Uh, but somehow that day, as legends grow, I was able to catch up to Jared Schnapp. 
I was able to, to sprint and get him right before the end zone. And, and honestly, to this day, amongst my friends, this remains a great mystery of how I was actually able. I don't know if it was one of those things where people talk about, like they get that rush of adrenaline. I don't know. I, I, maybe somebody, maybe there's a burst of wind. I don't know what it was. But I caught him right at the end zone. And as I was tackling him, um, he fell on my leg and snapped my leg and broke Every, it tore every ligament in my ankle. And it was worth it to be able to say <laughs> that I caught Jared Schnapp. I remember thinking that sound was not good. <laughs> I'll never forget that sound. And, uh, and I remember trying to, to put any bit of weight on it, and, and it just didn't, didn't work. And I went to the first doctor, and the first doctor says, it looked like you sprained your ankle. <laughs> He's like, you're not my doctor anymore. <laughs> so I went to another doctor, and, and he said, let's take an x-ray. And he took an x-ray, and he put it up there. And I was like, it looks good. And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. He said, yeah, or he took an, it was an MRI. And he said, he said every, uh, every ligament is, is torn here. And I thought, oh, that's not good. And he said, no, it's not good. He said, what's holding your foot uh, to your leg right now is basically your skin and your blood vessels. And it's like, oh, all right, well, that's definitely not good. Because ligaments, they, they support things, right? And if you've ever torn a ligament, ligament, you know that all of a sudden it loses its stability because it's not being held in a way that's supporting it to do what it's supposed to do. When Paul actually uses the words for supply in Philippians 1, he uses a word that is elsewhere used for ligaments, for support. And what he says to the church is that through this season, he has incredible joy. And the reason he has incredible joy is because of the support provided by, of all things, their prayer. That their prayer had become the ligaments to support his stay in prison. That it's reinforced what lies ahead, whether it's life or death. This is pre-Facebook, by the way. This is pre-email. So Paul's not sitting in prison thinking, Oh, cool, I got an update. Somebody's praying for me. He just knows it. He just knows the people of God are praying for him, and it's a support to him that's absolutely incredible. It's, it's a care package to somebody who's in the military. It's a Starbucks in the middle of the day to a mom who's exhausted from chasing her kids around. It's a support. It's an encouragement. Now, I was thinking about this and, and just the overwhelming support and love that we felt through this season that we've been in in the past two weeks. And, and really, it was quite remarkable, the, the, the correlation between finding out that people were praying specifically for my mom and the reports that the doctors gave. I, I cannot tell you. It was just, it was, I don't even want to use the word uncanny because that would imply that it wasn't orchestrated. But there was just a level to this where it was like, this is unreal. That, okay, you're praying for me. Wow, she, she's doing better. And, and I know that it doesn't always turn out that way, that we've had different experiences. But in this particular season, this moment, it was just incredible. The prayers offer this, this support that, that is just pleasing to, to God as well as encouraging to the people of God. And if you, you, you can think about it, there's no reason not to pray. The way that this works, I've come out on the other side of this and go, it's so easy, but it's so fruitful. There's no reason not to pray. 
And that offers a support to him. Specifically, the answer that Paul talks about is he talks about the, the presence of the Spirit of Jesus that is this, this, this encouragement and this warmth to him where a very relational God shows up in Paul's prison time in a very relational way to love him and to encourage him in a way that offers this support that, that, that is so, it's not superficial, it's very warm and very intimate, the way that he speaks of his relationship with Jesus Christ. And I, I have long said that I believe relationships are the best things in life. I think relationships are the best things in life. And I think the relationship with God, with your creator, is the best of the best. Paul's in prison going, nothing can touch that. There isn't, a, there isn't a way that that can be taken from me. And so he continues to rejoice. And that relationship proves to be incredibly valuable to him. It's something where he speaks about where, where he's in a position that is probably a bit more amplified than what we've been in, but, but many of us have been there where we're being judged. If you think about this, Paul is about to be judged. And he talks about this and he uses uses this, this term shame as if the outcome of the trial could, could have this emotional effect on him where he would be disgraced. It, 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 you can understand that. All of a sudden, Paul, he's been devoting his entire life to this ministry. He's been out there sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. That's the very reason that he's in, in prison. And, and there could be a court that comes along and says, you're foolish. Everything you've done is pointless. You're worthless. You don't deserve to be a free man. There's a reality where the judgment could bring shame. That's really an experience that many of us have had, where somebody judges us. They question our motives, they question our actives, actions. I, I don't know if you've recognized this about yourself, but the judgments of others tend to hang with you. They tend to stick around. They're not like little compliments that you might forget quickly. They're not just little casual things that might go past. The judgments of others are, are, are pretty sticky. Um, and I find them to be incredibly scarring. I've spent more time in counseling scenarios working through issues of judgment than I have most other things, where these things just hang with you. And, and Paul's in a situation where he's, he's literally being judged. And as he works his way through this, and he's teaching his way through this to the church in Philippi, he draws on and parallels very closely a book in the Bible um, that, that we know as the book of Job. The book of Job is one of the earliest Bible stories, and it's about this man named Job, who everything that could go wrong goes wrong in his life. And we're not going to go into all the details, but at Satan's request, his whole life is leveled, destroyed, and Job is just left in absolute misery. And Job's got some friends who show up, and instead of encouraging him, they judge him. And the judginess of his friends starts to stick with him. And, and, and if you read Job, he's wrestling with this reality where he knows his life, he knows his behavior, he knows his God, and yet he hears this, and he hears this, and he hears this. Now, check it out, Job chapter 12 and verse 4, he says, Job says, I'm a laughing stock to my friends. I, who called to God and he answered me, a just and blameless man, am a laughingstock. Job sees the irony in it. That I'm innocent in God's eyes, yet in these people's eyes, in their eyes, I'm a laughingstock. And his closest friends have just absolutely blasted him. And so Paul talks about being vindicated. He talks about it in the light of letting what is true be seen over what is judged. 
Letting what is true be seen over what is judged. That's the idea of vindication. And really, it's what we crave whenever we're judged. Anytime somebody said something to you, anytime they spoke down to you or they thought something of you that you felt and you knew wasn't true, that desire that you crave, that, that letting truth prevail over what is judged is called vindication. That you would be seen as you actually are, not as a laughing stock, but as blameless. And so what Paul knows that carries him through this all is that vindication will not come from what a courtroom says about him. True vindication comes from a divine place. It comes from a heavenly courtroom. And that courtroom is for Paul, that, that divine courtroom, that the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ is what really becomes a sanctuary for his hope, a sanctuary for his sanity, and a sanctuary for his reputation. Where Paul's going, in, in one sense, in a worldly sense, all of this is determined by the outcome of a trial. But in another sense, it's already been understood by God perfectly. And so I'm going to take my hope, I'm going to take my sanity, I'm going to take my reputation, and I'm not going to keep them in this courtroom. I'll put them in this one. And so this one could say it's priceless, or this one could say it's foolish, it, it, it's, it's wrong, it, it's, un, it, it's just, it's bad. But this courtroom sees it as it is. And it sees my heart for what it is. And so Paul ties his heart to a place where the shame is not based in the opinions of others. And I think this is fascinating. I think if Paul were alive today, I think it would be, incre I think he'd be incredibly rare. I think Paul, it's so counter to the American culture, I think Paul might be the only person living in this country who would be walking around without trying to prove anything to anyone about himself. I think, I think Paul would just, he'd be such a free person to sit down and have a conversation with, because I don't think he'd be trying to prove himself to me. I, I think when we let judginess, when we let the judgments of others stick with us, we end up trying to disprove them, don't we? We end up trying to demonstrate based on our life, based on our knowledge, based on what we can do, based on, based on whatever, that, that we're not what they've said. We're, we're not what our parents have said. We're not what our bosses said. We're not what uh, a, a former friend said. We're not what a teacher said. We're not. We're not. And we end up trying to just live to prove that we're not. Th th this is my fear, that those who live trying to prove something don't get to rest in the fact that they are something. Those who live trying to prove something don't get to rest in the fact that they are something. And Paul's in prison, and he's not at all concerned about trying to prove his innocence. Instead, he sits there, chained in a prison cell, praising God because of the fact that he is something. I love that idea that those who get to, get to rest in the fact that they are something don't have to go about trying to prove that, that they've done something they're not or I mentioned the Spirit and how the provision of the Spirit was an answer to prayer. I love Romans 8, 16, where it talks about the Spirit testifies to us that we are the children of God. And so Paul's in a prison cell, and everything about him is being debated and discussed, and, except for the fact that he's a child of God. Because as the church is praying, Paul's sitting there reminded and encouraged over and over again, over and over again, that he is a child of God. Of God and the beauty of the Christian vindication is that your sanctuary is always about you 
It's always about you. It's always around you. It's not circumstantial. It's not based on what is around you. The vindication, right? The courtroom setting, the sanctuary, it's wherever you are because your hope, your sanity, and your reputation rest in Jesus Christ, whether or not this world sees it or knows it at all. So, so if we can get practical for just a minute here, th- this is my, my plea to you, um, that, that you would let God's grace always be wed to your disgrace. That you would let God's grace always be wed to your disgrace. That, that the two would always be together. That whatever your disgrace from a human perspective, the grace of God would be right there with you. In other words, that the payment of, of, this, of your sins would, attach, would be attached to your guilt. That, that the love of the Savior would be attached to whatever is imperfect or flawed about you. That the freedom from judgment that you have in Jesus Christ as he was judged on your behalf would be attached to whenever somebody judges you. That, that your confidence and your courage and your clarity in Jesus Christ would be attached to whatever shames you. That, that, that your grace, the grace of God, would always be wed, would always be with your disgrace. And I think that's the key to getting through these seasons where shame and judgment want to stick with us and want to keep us away from what God wants for us. And we've got Paul sitting in prison, sitting under judgment, and saying, I know I'll be vindicated because this isn't the courtroom that decides my fate. And what happens in the text is Paul talks about, therefore, as he becomes courageous, that Christ is exalted in him. Christ has exalted him. And the word exalted, you know, the prefix is mega, that it would become bigger, that Jesus would become bigger in, in Paul, that the perfect son of God would show up through Paul and the way that he lives. Um, so last night, we, uh, we, we started Christmas like four weeks ago now, by the way. Um, pretty much the second we got a positive test result, we we're like, we're starting Christmas now. Um, and, uh, and so we've got the Christmas tree going. We, we had Christmas music the other day. We've already had cookies. It's a good time, right? <laughs> we might start earlier next year. I don't know. Uh, but last night we were watching Home Alone 2. And, uh, and I, w- I was prepping the sermon in, in the chair, and the boys were on the couch with Corinne watching Home Alone 2. And, uh, and I'll tell you what, watching their reactions and them just laughing. First of all, Home Alone writers... Like, I don't know how they had the foresight to, to plan a movie perfectly for my two boys, but they did. I mean, that, that movie was for them. Um, and I, don't, I was worried at points that they were not breathing enough because they were laughing so hard. Um, but I, I, just, I was watching it thinking, I remember sitting on a couch with my two brothers doing the exact same thing. I remember seeing it exact. I, I was in their shoes. That's me to a T. And that, that's what Paul's talking about here. That Jesus sees Jesus in Paul. That Jesus is watching Paul in, in, in chains and saying, that's exactly like I would be. I see me in him. That's what he talks about, the idea that Christ is exalted, that, that Christ is visible in, in Paul, that, that he's become bigger, that, that Paul has a higher estimation of Jesus, a greater love, a a more devoted attention, and it's just all about Jesus for Paul. And that's the idea of this word exalted, that that Paul is essentially this instrument that he offers to Jesus, and Jesus plays loudly, beautifully, more boldly than it was before, that it's become bigger. 
And so in a sense, the gospel has, quote, been handcuffed and, be, and been you know, shrunk into this little tiny box. And Paul says, no, it hasn't. If anything, it's having more impact than if I were outside of here, which is fascinating. With Christmas being here, you're going to start to hear some Christmas music. And, uh, and one of my favorites, personally, is the little drummer boy. I, I just love that. I love the barupa bum bum like just sticks in your head. I don't remember the other words. I just kind of, you know, make up some stuff and then get to the barapa bum bum part. Um, but but um, I, I want us to, to think about this because when Paul talks about um, this idea of being exalted, it, it's, it's really like he's an instrument that's, that's being played louder for Jesus, but he chooses a word that is passive, not active. And so as much as I love the little drummer boy, there's this image, the song is, is this little boy coming and bringing his drum, bringing, bringing himself before the king, and he's playing to please the king. But what Paul talks about it is actually not that scenario. What Paul talks about here is it's as if he himself is the drum, sitting before the king. And instead of him saying, let me play for you, he says, here's the drumsticks, you play me. That's the idea here, that Paul is not somehow doing something incredible and say, God, let me please you. Paul is saying, God, it's most pleasing for me to let you be in me, to let you have control, to let you guide me, to let you be the very source of all that I am. Paul's not saying, let me perform to please you. Paul's saying, let me be a sacrifice that lives for you, where you live in me. I, I love this idea because I, I, think it's so, I think it's so paramount for us to just be able to show up to God and say, God, let me see what you can do with my life. Not let me do something for you, but let me see what you can do through my life. As I was thinking about this, I was thinking, uh, really, there should be a degree of passivity to all of our path as a Christian. For me to just say, God, whatever you have for me today, this isn't about me performing for you. This is about you working in and through me. And what it does is it takes away this degree of, is God going to be happy with me? Of course he's going to be happy with you. He's living through you. There is no, did I do it well enough for God to be happy? There's simply a, I gave God permission, and he worked mightily through me. The Christian life is far more passive than I think we realize. It's about allowing the Spirit of God to work in and through us. It's not working for him. It's letting him work through. It's, it's allowing us to say, God, I, I'm going to take this, this perspective to my future that's incredibly flexible. I don't know precisely what you want to do with it. But I know that you'll supply whatever strength is necessary for me to do it. I know that you'll supply the prayers of others to help get me through it. I know that you'll give me wisdom to get through it. I, I, just the Spirit brings to mind the passage in, in um, the Gospels where Jesus talks about how the, the disciples will be arrested and they'll be persecuted. And Jesus says, but don't worry what you're going to have to say because the Spirit will help you in that time. That's, that's what we're talking about here. This, don't worry, just follow what God has for you. I mean, if you come and you help out with us later today at the park, you, you're going to meet people. I don't know how those conversations are going to go. But I pray that each one of us lets the Spirit of God work through us in the most loving way. And I'm excited to see what happens when we say, God, here's my drum. I want to see what happens when you play. 
what we see then is essentially uh, a slogan that comes out. I, I feel it's a slogan. I'm, I'm giving you my personal opinion here, where Paul kind of shows us what I think is his personal slogan. And, and for many of you, you've memorized this verse, Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Um, and, and it's an incredible verse. I love it. I, I don't think we understand the full impact of it, so I actually want to put it up here. Um, and, and I don't often do this a lot, but we've got the English version, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And then we've got the the um, the Greek version here, amoe garta, um, sorry, I can't read that one as much as I can read this one. Amoe garta zain Christos kaita apothenein kerdos. Let me read it to you again. Garta zain Christos kaita apothenein kerdos. And so we put it up there because I want you to understand that in the, the English, we've actually supplied words that aren't there to help it read more grammatically, but in the original language, what it really says is for me, the life Christ, the death gain. And what you have right here is this very abbreviated, very punctual, very well balanced and flowing statement that sounds very much like a slogan to me. Something I believe Paul would have repeated over and over again. Gartazein Christos kaita apothenein kerdos. Gartazein Christos kaita apothenein kerdos. It just has a ring to it. And a statement that's intensely personal the way it's formatted, because it doesn't need a moegar at the beginning, but he's exclaiming, for me, for me, this is for me. Life, Christ, death, gain. And that's what carries him through this, is this intentionally, intensely personal confession. And it's this cry that has become a cry for many of us as well. For me to live is Christ, for me to die is gain. Now, when we see a statement like that, I think we tend to say, could I say that? Could I say that? Would I be able to say that like Paul said? And I don't want you to answer that question. I want to stick with this passive idea um, where I think that shows up more naturally if we ask a different question. What, what must be true of Jesus for Paul to be able to say that? What must be true of Jesus Christ for Paul to be able to say that? Be, to be sitting in, in prison to face the possibility of dying for him, knowing that his very life has been nothing but to live for him, what must be true of Jesus for a man to make a statement like that? I, I would argue that he, he'd have to be more exciting than any romantic interest. That he'd have to be more fulfilling than any hobby, more satisfying than any career, more joy-producing than any child. He must have found something in Jesus that is really out of this world, that is incredible. And so my question is not, can you make the statement like that? My question is more, have you found Jesus? Have you found that Jesus? Because I think if you find him, and I think if you get to know him more and you get close to him, I think that statement naturally shows up in your life. The more you love him, the more that you inevitably reach a conclusion where you go, for me to live is nothing but Jesus. For me to die is nothing but a gain because I get to be united with the one I've, I've craved my entire life. It, it's just, that's there the more that I know him. And so not can you measure up to that statement, but do you know the one that statement is about? Paul elsewhere in Philippians go, the more I understand Jesus, the more everything else in this world looks like trash. The more it looks like garbage. 
Because Jesus is just that much better. It's not that everything else is trash, it's just that he is that much better that when I compare the two, I can't possibly come to any other conclusion that everything else is garbage compared to him. So not can you measure up to that, but have you met him? See, Peter Thomas O'Brien writes about this. He says, living has no meaning apart from Christ. He is the object, the motive, the inspiration, and the goal of all that Paul does. Yeah, as I thought about this, I, my, my, my mind was taken back to um, the first person on this earth that I really, and maybe you've been there, the first guy or the first girl that you've ever been attracted to. You, you grew up and, and now all of a sudden you, you met everybody else, but then there's somebody who just was different. And maybe nothing ever came of it, but, but when you first met him, you found somebody who you wanted to give a more special version of yourself to. Somebody worth more, giving more affection, more attention, just more devotion to that person. And what what Paul is talking about here in Philippians 1.21 is he found one worth the full weight of his affections. He found one worth the most special version of himself. Found one worth all the devotion. And the more that he finds to be true of this person, he doesn't see flaws that make it fade away or make it more challenging to show. He finds even greater truth to give even more affection. That's Philippians 1. Paul's sitting in jail and he goes, everything else in the world is limited except for Jesus Christ, his glory and his mission. Your prayers are encouraging me. They're inspiring me to keep going. At the end of the day, if I die, you don't understand how good this is going to be for me. I kind of think at the end of the day, I'm going to keep here, and it's going to be for your progress, and I'm going to keep pouring my life out for you. But really, if you ask me, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. So I ask you not, can you make that statement, but I ask you, do you know the same Jesus that Paul knew? If not, if this is all new to you, What the scripture presents is is a savior who loves you enough to die on a cross for you. And even the very idea of the cross is far more passive for you than active. See, See, being loved by God is not about performing for him so that you've done enough to make him happy. It's a gift that you receive, it's grace. And what the scriptures teach is this idea that Jesus died for the wrongs that you committed so that you could be forgiven and freely enter eternity with him. That his death takes the active role of your death. It takes the punishment of yourself. And the Bible teaches that it's free through faith. That all you need to do is believe that his death stood as your death and his resurrection gives you the hope of life after death. That's what this is all about. And if that's what it's all about for you, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, through your love, every waking minute of this existence is a win-win. Every bit of it. It's all win-win. Because no matter how dire the circumstances are, I delight in you. Lord, let that be our heart. And let us lead people to you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.